I too want to acknowledge um, our moms here this morning, and I ask a favor. If you could please stand up, I'd appreciate it. I know you don't do this because you want the accolades, but we want to uh, provide that opportunity. Yeah, no guys standing up, please. <laughs> and just let our moms know we appreciate them. Stay standing, stay standing. I'd like to, uh, before we go into the Word, I'd like to pray for you. So let's do that together. Lord, I do thank you for these women, Lord, who, um, Father, have sacrificed much, not only in bringing us into the world, but in their nurture, their care, their love, their concern, their uh, sleepless nights, Lord, and cleaning up messes that a lot of us dads wouldn't do. Uh, Lord, I thank you for these women. I appreciate how you have designed it so that, Lord, uh, you would um, build and and construct and give uh, these precious ones the uh, personality and desire the nurture and care for and i pray lord you would bless them richly strengthen them encourage them lord especially those days where a fatigue has set in or it's just been a long day that god they would look to your grace that you have given and your strength to be able to continue to uh, serve in in their role and i pray god you would help the the men to step up and lord to lead to shepherd to be an encouragement to uh, come alongside their wives and encourage them in this Uh, noble but difficult task and lord i too pray uh, lord as we come to your word that god you would open our eyes and help us to see all the wonderful things in your law that we might understand and apply we thank you in jesus precious name amen although i didn't prepare a mother's day sermon the title actually is named after a famous mother Uh, grace is the english translation for the word hannah hannah Uh, She was a wonderful woman. Um, But this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2. This is a passage that uh, uh, Spurgeon often found himself gravitating towards. It was, I think, one of his favorite texts given the number of times he preached on it. Um, This great 19th century preacher who delivered thousands of sermons um, uh, loved this passage. In fact, he said of it, uh, within the circle of these words in Ephesians 2.8, My theology is contained so far as it refers to the salvation of men. And there was a time uh, late in his ministry when he was preaching on Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And he reflected on that time as he was introducing the message on a time in his past when he was a young preacher. And he had been invited to preach at a small country church. And he was delayed in getting there because of transportation issues. So I guess in 1890, stuck in traffic worked Uh, at that time too but that's what happened to him so as he was trying to get to the church he was surprised to find as he was approaching the church they had already started the service and as he was getting closer uh, to the church he realized that there was somebody already preaching and what surprised him even more is as he entered into the church he found that it was his grandfather behind the pulpit his grandfather saw him enter and and said here comes my grandson He can preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel, can you, Charles? I guess he referred to him as Charles. We call him Chuck. Um, But Chuck Spurgeon, his grandfather, had been preaching from Ephesians 2.8. And he asked his grandson to take over at that point, as I would do if he entered the room right now. But he basically what's cute about the story is he describes his grandfather then took a seat behind him. And as he was preaching, his grandfather would kind of interject these comments. And at one point, even his grandfather got up and gave an illustration from what Spurgeon had just said. 
But Spurgeon was very gracious with his grandfather, and he finally reminisced on how he could hear his grandfather saying at times throughout the sermon, Good, good. Tell them that again, Charles. Well, these words, for by grace you have been saved, they are familiar words. They're probably ones that you have spoken as you've shared the gospel with someone or as you've talked with somebody else about the wonderful grace in God's salvation. You know, this passage is still one of those that we can't hear enough of. We can't reflect enough on this truth, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And I thought, you know, no words would be more appropriate than those spoken long ago by an old man to his grandson. Tell them that again. So with that, let's look again at Ephesians 2. We'll start in verse 1. Paul's writing here to Gentile believers. He spent about three years with them. So he understood their struggles. He knew the difficulties that they faced in trying to live holy lives and trying to live for God and carry out and follow through with their, um, their lives as Christians. Paul understood that they needed to be encouraged to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in doing that, they needed to have a correct mindset. They needed to have a proper understanding, a right understanding of what God had done in their life and what He is continuing to do in their life. And he reminds them back in chapter 1, verse 19, that God's great power is at work within them. And then he went on to describe, as we talked about last week, just what God's power had done in their lives, where God had taken them from and what He had brought them to. Let's uh, begin in chapter 2, verse 1, to get um, a running start on the context here before we get to verse 7. Paul says there, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul articulates here that before Christ we were spiritually dead in sin. We had no ability to respond to God, no ability to truly understand and grasp and comprehend the things of God. Externally, we were caught up in following a, a world system opposed to God. We were under the control of the evil one. Internally, we were enslaved to our own flesh and its desires, again, which were opposed to the things of God. And then in verse 4, we read that wonderful statement, but God, but God, right? He gave us spiritual life, a relationship with Him. He gave us a freedom from Satan and from our own flesh. He gave us a new home in Christ. And with Christ outside of this world. And he poured out from his vast treasure troves of blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul has spent time focusing our attention on this. The forgiveness we have in Christ. The, the, the deliverance from hell. Eternal life. Fellowship with God. All that was accomplished by the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. And this begged the question. And we brought it up last week. We talked about Why? Why would God do that? What would compel him, a, a holy and a just God who hates sin, who punishes sin, a God who cannot bear to look upon it? Why would a perfect God have anything to do with the likes of us? Why would God, who created us in his image, right? And we marred that image by a rebellion and sin against him. 
Why would he not just cast us all in hell and be done with the whole lot of us? And more than that, why would he turn around and send his son as a sacrifice on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life with him? Why would God do that? What was the answer last week, brothers and sisters? Why? Because of his, his mercy and his love, his rich mercy, his great love. That's why God cannot look upon humanity without compassion. He had pity on us. He saw the desperate state we were in. He saw us on the bullet train to hell and jumped in front of it at his own peril. Because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he sent his own son to die in our place if we repent and believe. And God not only saved us because of his mercy, not only because of his great love, but there's one more reason that Paul gives here in verses 7 through 10. Look with me in verse 7. Paul Say, or God saved us so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You find that third reason? Paul repeats it there several times. What is it? God's grace. Yeah, the title gives it away, doesn't it? Verse 5, for by grace you've been saved. Verse 7, in order that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. Verse 8, he repeats again, for by grace you've been saved through faith. God saved you because of his grace. A truth that Paul loved to declare In fact, of the 155 times we see this word charis in the New Testament, a hundred of those were given by Paul. Twelve of them here in his letter to the Ephesians. And the simple idea behind it is, you know this, right? Grace is his unmerited favor, his undeserved gift or benefit, an act of goodwill or kindness given to somebody contrary to what they deserve. And this morning in in Ephesians 2, 7 through 10, we're going to focus on God's ever-present grace. Because if we could just understand God's constant and active and vigilant grace in our life, it would help us. We would find it to be among the most powerful truths in helping us to become holy and helping us on our path to holiness and helping us with the struggles that we have with sin. Truly, grace is critical to grasp in our Christian life. In verses 8 and 9, we see God's past grace. In verse 10, we'll look at His present grace. Then we'll jump back to verse 7 to consider His future grace. Let's first look at verses 8 and 9, His past grace. You know, every believer has a testimony. And our testimonies are kind of like fingerprints. They're all a little bit different. They're all unique. But there's one facet, one aspect of every testimony that we share. And that's given in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That is true for every one of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ in this room. By grace you've been saved. In fact, Paul brings that word charis or grace up to the front of the sentence to, to emphasize it. By grace you've been saved through faith. The question is, saved from what? The word saved there just has the idea of being delivered or rescued from a great danger or a peril. And were we not in great peril? Paul took a lot of time in verses 1 to 3 to articulate 
the desperate state we were in. We talked about that, about that last week. And I, as I thought about those few verses, I share with you what, an illustration of what that looked like. That we were, all of us, in the prison of this world. And that Satan was our warden. And that we were deep within that prison, contained within the jail, jail cell of our flesh. And that cell had no door. No key could unlock it. We were trapped there. And worse than that, we were sentenced to death. We were awaiting eternal execution in hell. Can you think of a more perilous state than that? But by God's grace, we've been saved from all of that. We've been released from that cell. We've been delivered from that prison. We've been taken out and freed. And not only that, we no longer have the wrath of God, the just punishment for our sin. That's no longer hanging over us. We're no longer children of wrath. Romans 5, 9 says, Having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved, same word there, from the wrath of God through Christ. Because without God's grace, we're doomed to an eternity apart from Him. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 describes it as the penalty of eternal destruction, the eternal state of being destroyed, but never dying away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. We've been saved from having to answer for our many and terrible sins against God. We're no longer dead men walking. And it's not just what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. God didn't just rescue us out of the water and throw us into this old fishing boat with nothing to eat and nothing to put on or wear. No, God plucked us out and and placed us in a, a magnificent yacht. Or as my daughter pronounced it earlier this week, the yacht. We're in a yacht now. Verses 5 to 6 talk about that. That God made us alive. That He raised us up. And that He seated us with Christ. And all of this came how? How did all of this happen? By God's undeserved, unmerited favor. By His grace. And Paul is so emphatic here in this text in giving credit to God. And he not only talks about that we've been saved by grace, by God's grace, he looks at the other side of the coin and says, and not by our works. Notice how many statements he makes to that point. Right after saying, by grace you are saved through faith, in verse 8 he says, and that, not of yourselves. That there is referring to the salvation through faith. The source of your salvation isn't you. You didn't rescue yourself. You didn't free yourself from the desperate state you were in. Again, there was no door, no key inside of that cell that you were contained in. God had to deliver you. And then he said, it is the gift of God. Now, what's interesting here is in in the Greek, the, the, the word God or of God is actually moved forward. So you have that not of yourselves, of God is the gift. So he puts it in direct contrast to clash with that idea. It wasn't you, it was God. Who gave that gift? And then on top of that, he says, not as a result of works. Works being labor, actions, effort. Our salvation did not come from any work we did or anything we performed. And it's difficult for us to accept that. It is difficult. In fact, that's what keeps us from coming to Christ. Till God opens our eyes. You know, it's, it's just in our nature, isn't it? To feel like there's something. There's something I must have done. There's something I must do to earn God's favor. 
Okay, yeah, I know maybe it's a little bit, you know, and God will take me the rest of the way, but, but there's got to be something, right? I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine several years ago in Idaho who was uh, uh, Mormon, and he was explaining to me um, some things. And you know what? He quoted this passage to me in the car as we were driving from a business trip. He said, for by grace you've been saved. And I said, well, what does that mean? And it was very interesting as he explained it, is that uh, there's a certain part we have to get ourselves to a point where there's certain things we need to do, and then God's grace will carry us the rest of the way. I was stunned by that. Great conversation where I tried to explain, well, no, that's not exactly what he's talking about there. Grace, by definition, means God takes you from the beginning to the end the whole way. But it's difficult. It's difficult for us to accept that concept that of a true gift, that there's nothing I can do or did in order to earn God's favor. And Paul dealt with this kind of thinking all the time. He dealt with people who just couldn't get the concept that there's nothing you can do to be made right before God, to be justified. In Galatians 2.16, he said, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three different times in these two verses, Paul says, you aren't justified by works, but by faith. By the way, did I say you're not justified by your works, but by faith? And hey, you're not justified by your works, but by faith. The point he's trying to make in these verses, because people are thinking, if I just keep the law, I can find my way in here. I can earn my way in. If I'm just good enough, then God will accept me. And it wasn't just the, the Jews of Paul's day that struggle with that. Because again, who's he writing this verse to in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Believers who are Gentiles, right? They came out of a religion of works, did they not? False paganism where they felt compelled to bring sacrifice or offering or, or thanksgiving offerings to these deities so that the deities might bless them or, or not stomp on them. They had a works-based salvation just like the Jews. And in fact, it's the same today, isn't it? Every major religion outside of genuine Christianity has involved in it some level of human effort to achieve heaven or to achieve right standing before God. Some action, some ritual, some duty to be performed. And even people who aren't religious have the same mentality, don't they? I mean, how many times if you've talked to somebody about the um, uh, salvation and, and you ask them, why do you think God will let you into heaven? What do they say? What did you say? Before you became a Christian. I'm good enough. I did enough good things. Right? And there are others that think, well, God's grace supplies what I lack. But see, it's not that grace supplies those who don't have enough. It supplies those who have nothing. We have no capacity to come to God at our, on our own. Right? That was Paul's whole point in these first three verses. We're dead in sin. We have no ability to save ourselves. We have no capacity to come to God. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless. Right? He rescues those who know they need to be rescued. Not those who say, I'm, I'm close, God. Can you just lend me a little hand here? No, it's we're, we're down. We're going down. We were drowning. Drowned, actually. We were dead. And God pulled us out, 
resuscitated us. It is the one who cries out, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The only way to be saved, the only way to be saved is by God's grace. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. God doesn't have some, some uh, balanced scale in heaven, or I guess it would be electronic now, some electronic meter in heaven that measures your good works and your bad works. And as soon as that scale tips a little more to the good side, you're in, you're good. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. I know there are some in this room relying on that, hoping that, you know, I've done enough good things. I think God will be okay with me. I haven't done a lot of any really bad stuff. You kind of see that as a scale where the really bad stuff goes on the, this side and really, you know, your good works, your good deeds go on this side. But the problem is our bad deeds are like bricks and our good ones are like peas. They'll never balance out. God doesn't look at it that way. There's no kind act, no religious service, no repeated prayers that are going to cancel out your sins against God. Listen, you're only saved by grace through faith. No good work will get you there. God's not going to accept, accept any of them. 2 Timothy 1.9 said, He saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And that's why Paul says at the end of Ephesians 2.9, No one can boast. No one's going to be up there. None of us will be up there patting ourselves on the back. None of us are going to be there taking credit for any part of our salvation. No one. So stop trying to earn your salvation. You can't. There's no way that you can. The debt is too large. You'd have a better chance of paying off by yourself the national debt than getting to heaven on your own. (laughs) You got the point. It's impossible. I won't make any jokes about whether or not our government can do it either. But it's impossible to pay your debt of sin to God. You can never pay it. Only the blood of Christ can. One drop on that scale will dump it through the floor. All your wicked deeds will be thrown off the other side. And God will welcome you. It's not by works, but by faith that anyone will be justified or made right before God. This means that God's, the means of God's grace is faith. When God opens our eyes, He gives us the gift to believe, to, to understand, to, to come to Him and accept not only His, His death on the cross for my sins, but to trust Him, to place my faith in Him, to follow Him, to be willing to turn from my sins and place my faith in Christ. Second Peter 1, 1 said of believers that they have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Or Paul said in Philippians 1.29 that God granted Christians or believers the ability to see, the ability to believe in Him. Right? It's God who opens the eyes. It's God who quickens the mind. It is God who seeks and saves sinners. And He brings that salvation through faith. And that's why you see all through the Gospels, all through Acts, all through the letters in the New Testament that we must repent and believe. We must have faith. Right? You know John 3.16, whoever believes in Him shall not perish. When Jesus came and preached the gospel in Mark 1, 14 and 15, the gospel of the kingdom, He says, repent and believe in the gospel. 
Acts 16.31, Paul said to the jailer, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. True faith displays itself in acknowledging that we've sinned against God. True faith shows itself that I will trust you for my salvation and you alone. True faith is willing to turn from our sins and place our trust in Him. I know many of you understand this. This is, for many of you, not new information. But Paul wrote this to believers. If you take a step back a minute, well, why, why would he do that? Didn't, didn't they already know this message? Isn't that if they're saved, didn't they already understand? It wasn't by their works that that happened. I mean, Paul preached that all the time when he was showing up at our synagogue and our school here in Ephesus. Paul, why are you bringing this up again? Well, I think there are two reasons, and he's been focusing on them in his letter to this point. The first is, who receives God's glory for our salvation? Or who receives the glory for our salvation? God, doesn't he? To the praise of the glory of his grace. And Paul wants to just keep bringing us back there. Wow, isn't God amazing? Isn't he incredible? Isn't he gracious? I owe it all to him. Praise God. And the second reason I think that he's doing that is that it's a comfort. It's an encouragement. Understanding God's grace and bringing us to salvation will bring us comfort. Because of this. If you realize and understand that your salvation is not dependent on anything that you did, then you need not fear that there may be something you could do to lose it. If I didn't, if no work of mine earned my salvation, there is no work of mine that's going to unearn it. There's not going to come a point in time where there's, oh, that's it. Yeah, I saved you, but that's enough. You've done so much now, forget it. I'm pulling back, I'm rescinding my offer. No, if he saved me not because of any work that I did, he's not going to throw me out because of any work that I did. And that is an encouragement, brothers and sisters. Lewis Perry Perry Schaefer said this, Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human failure and sin. In fact, grace cannot be exercised, whereas there is the slightest degree of human merit to be recognized. You know, let that percolate a minute. Romans 6 1 says that where sin abounded, grace superabounded. God loves and accepts you on your best days and shockingly on your worst. Now, yes, you need to confess. You need to repent on those bad days. It's not like just God blows it off, you can shrug it off. No, you need to, to go to Him and, and cast that sin upon Him, ask for forgiveness. But then just know that God's not going to hold that over you. God's forgiveness means that He chooses to remember our sins no more. There's no threat of us losing our salvation. There's no threat of Him hanging it over us and removing favor. Isn't that a comfort? It is to me. You know, these verses call our attention not only to God's past grace, not only to what He has done and how He's poured out that grace upon us in the past, but also in the present. And there's a couple of ways that he does that. Two ways that we see in our text. The verse is, uh, the first one is in that verb, you've been saved. This verb is in the perfect tense in Greek. And I bring that up because the perfect tense means it is a past action which has its focus on the present result from that action. In other words, it's something that has been done in the past and is drawing attention to its impact on us right now. And Paul further emphasizes that by um, doing what Greek scholars call a periphrastic construction, 
which simply means this, that he added the verb to be before this verb you've been saved. Because he's wanting to intensify and draw attention to the present condition that we have because God saved us in the past. And this is what it means for you now. It's not just some historical fact. It has a present impact, a huge impact on you today. You are saved would probably be a better reference, better way to translate that. He didn't just give you enough grace to get you saved and that's it. No, you have a lifetime supply. You didn't just win one box of chocolates, but enough chocolate for the rest of your life. In fact, as much as you can eat for the rest of your life. And for eternity. And this is an important point that I'm bringing up because a lot of Christians live like God gave them one box of chocolate. A lot of us have this mentality that, you know, I I know I can't earn my salvation, but I need to keep all these commands so God will stay happy with me. Or I need to do all these rules so I can be blessed. Or I need to obey so I don't get in trouble. I need to follow the law so that God, I can show God, hey, you didn't make a mistake when you saved me. I need to do something to contribute to my present standing before God, don't I? We're so performance-based in our thinking. We don't just struggle with it before salvation. We struggle with it after I have to be good. I have to be good. God's adopted me into his house and now I have to earn my keep there. No, you don't. Jesus already did. His righteousness not only counts toward your salvation, it counts toward your sanctification. We also see this in Ephesians 2 verse 10 where he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship here is the idea of the work of a craftsman, or you could translate it masterpiece. And this idea here of created, it's the same root word in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new uh, creation or new creature. Believers are a, a new creation that has been handcrafted by God. Someone who was formerly dead in sin, God is now made into someone who will carry out good works which he prepared for them to do. Titus 2.14 says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus said himself, right? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. God, God loves good works. But it isn't our good works that save us, right? It's God saves us for good works. Narcy Sproul said this, Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Now, Paul doesn't give us specific examples of what those good works are here in this verse. He does that later in chapters 4 through 6. However, he does say, though, that those good works, God prepared them beforehand. God ordained good works that we should walk in them. Which means in, in His providence, there's a life of good works that God has set apart for you to walk in, to live for His glory and for your good. And Christian, if, if you've been reborn by God, if, if God has set you on a path to do good works, if God has even designed good works for you to do, then do you not think He'll give you the grace to do them? 
Turn with me briefly to Titus 2.11 to see this. Titus 2, verse 11. I read a minute ago from verse 14. There's an important point here about grace that I think we need to see. Grace of God is so vital to our sanctification. It's so vital to our Christian life now. Titus 2.11. Paul says, Therefore the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Again, we see God's grace and personified in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when He came, offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin, He provided a way of salvation that we could know God. And it is grace, the grace of God that appeared when God did that. And then in your own life, when God opened your eyes to see the truth of the gospel, it was by the grace of God. That's all packed there in verse 11. But then verse 12, key word right at the beginning of verse 12, instructing present participle, ongoing, now, instructing, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Note those two words, instructing us and in the present age. God's grace is at work today. It's not only God's grace that brought you salvation, but it is currently instructing you to deny ungodliness and to live righteously. God's present grace continues after you're saved. His grace that is now tutoring you, that is educating you, that is bringing you step by step by step to understand and carry out and live the life of holiness that God has called you to. God's grace is active now. And you and I need God's grace not only to be saved, but we need it for our Christian life. Isn't that what God told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when God given him a trial that he had to undergo. And God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Yet we we seem to get caught up in this thinking that it's my holiness is up to me, that I need to grit my teeth and work it out, that I must obey, obey God commanded it, so I better figure out a way to do it. And please don't misunderstand me here. The issue is not whether we need to obey the commands of God. (laughs) Of course we do. That's why God saved us. The problem is how you go about doing that. Do you rely on yourself? Do you see that it's all up to you? Do you see the Christian life as you just need to gut this thing out until you die? Just survive as long as you can. Listen, you you need God's grace as much to live out the Christian life than to become a Christian in the first place. It's not like we got this big... Big mass of grace right at salvation. And then and God maybe chucks a few little drops once in a while after that, if at all. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a fire hose that continues to flow. Don't get stuck on that performance treadmill that your blessing and your status before God as a believer is based on what you do. Jump off the treadmill. In fact, turn to Matthew 19. I want you to see there's a parable that Christ gave that is connected to this, this idea of a performance-based sanctification. Matthew 19 is where Jesus, if you remember, it just challenged the rich young ruler, remember the guy that came up and said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And, and then uh, they walked through, uh, Jesus said, well, what does the law say? And, and then they got to the point at the end when Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. And... The rich young ruler walked away, right? He loved his money more than Christ. Well, Peter picked up on Jesus' challenge there. 
And notice what he asks Jesus in Matthew 19, starting in verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you followed me. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, Peter's question was essentially this. Jesus, you told that guy to leave everything to follow you. Well, that's what we did. So what's in it for us? What do we get out of the deal? What's going to be our reward? See that that workspace mentality here. But Jesus was so gracious. And he said, you know what, Peter? You will be richly blessed. You will be given a great reward. And any who have turned from their sin and followed me will be blessed. But then he goes on to address the problem in Peter's question. And the problem he gives in the form, or the answer he gives in the form of a proverb, but the many who are first shall be last and the last first. And then he goes on in chapter 20 to explain what he meant by that in a parable. It's a parable of the landowner. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 20 here in Matthew. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, let's stop there a minute. Let's get the setting here. Normal work day in that time period would have been about from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Jesus describes a vineyard owner who it must probably be uh, toward the time of harvest and he needs extra help. So he goes into the marketplace and he begins to hire day laborers. These were guys that didn't have a steady job. They were looking for work each day just to provide food for their families. They lived hand to mouth. They were among the most destitute and needy in that culture. And the landowner, he offers them a denarius, which was a, a day's wage, a generous wage actually for, uh, for these day laborers. It was something that uh, was about the amount that was given to a Roman soldier. It was an amount that was given normally to those who were uh, steadily employed. So, but for a day laborer, who typically would get less than that, he, he offered them the same amount. So, these guys agree to the deal. They go to begin work in the field about 6 in the morning. Let's continue in verse 3. And he, that's the landowner, went out about the third hour, or 9 a.m., saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you go also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour, or sixth and ninth hour, so that's noon and 3 o'clock, and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing? Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go too into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Stop there for a minute. So you get the picture here, right? The vineyard owner Hires these guys in the morning, 6 o'clock. Then he goes back at 9 o'clock. Then he comes back at noon. Then at 3. Then at 5. And he continues to hire more workers. And then the whistle blows, 6 o'clock. He gathers the laborers in to pay them, starting with the group that came in last, and he paid them first. 
This shows the honor of the landowner and that he recognized their need to, to go and find food and pay for food so they could provide for their families that evening. So he makes sure to pay them as the law of Moses called him to do. And here's where Jesus, as he likes to do with his parables, flips it. You know, it's kind of, you know, this is a, kind of a normal situation up to this point. A little unusual that he'd keep going out and, and even paying these guys, um, you know, first instead of last. Because normally you'd pay the guys that were there first. That's a little unusual, but here's where Jesus flips it. Notice in verse 9 what he paid these guys. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, and each one received, uh, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But if I wish to give this last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am so generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now put yourself in the shoes of those 11th hour guys. Can you imagine what happened when they got home? Honey, you're not going to believe this. You know, I'm, I went to the marketplace again, tried to get some work. I'm there all day. Nothing, nothing. Some guys came by, hired other guys. There I'm sitting, there I'm standing. About five o'clock, I, I just thought, you know, nothing's going to happen here. I'm going to go home. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes up and he hired me to do an hour of work in his field. And he takes me out there. I work. We didn't agree on a price because I figured, you know, whatever I can get is better than nothing. So I get out there, I work, and then he pays me first. Instead of the guys who had been there all day. And not only that, get this. He gave me a denarius. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. Imagine the joy in the house that day. And then there are those guys on the other side, the ones that had been working there all day. Imagine what they were thinking. In fact, Jesus tells us what they were thinking. Right? They're watching this guy handing out the money to, to each of these other workers that had gone before them. And as, these, as the landowner's getting closer to them, what are they thinking? Wow. Yeah, I know I agreed to a denarius, but look at what he's, he's paying those guys that I'm out. I've been here all day. They're, man, what am I going to get? Right? You'd be thinking the same thing too. You know you would. We're all that way, right? It's understandable. But what should they have been thinking? What should their focus have been? Right? Their idea here was, you know, I did more, so I deserve more. This is a picture of works-based sanctification. I obey more, I get more prizes. I work harder and longer, I should get more. I need to earn my righteous standing before God. Yes, God got me in, but I need to take it from there and earn my keep. Or this idea that, you know, I know I wasn't worthy before I was saved, but now I am worthy because of what I do. These righteous acts, I'm, I'm earning more favor. But let me ask you this. One of the key themes of this parable is what? The grace of the landowner. Did any of those guys deserve to be hired? No, he went and chose them, didn't he? They were only there because of the gracious choice of the landowner. Did any of them deserve to receive a full denarius? No, they didn't. Even the guys hired at first. That was a generous offer even for them. But the gracious landowner was willing to pay it. 
So why did he keep going back for more workers? This is something that people listening to the parable would have... Why does he keep going back? Didn't he figure out in the beginning what he would need in order to take care of the harvest? Was he that dumb? No. He went back and he kept going back, not for his sake, but for the sake of those day laborers. In fact, he went back there at 5 o'clock knowing, hey, if these guys don't have any job, if they don't have any money to take home, they're not going to eat. So I'm going to hire them. And I'm going to pay them a full day. Because they need it, not because I do. You see the connection here? Our gracious God hired all of us, and none of us deserve to be chosen. None of us deserve God's blessing on us now. And your standing before God now is not something to be earned. Your obedience is not to be seen as something God will compensate you for. And don't be like those guys who were hired first and they focused on their own efforts instead of on the landowner's grace and generosity. What should they have been thinking standing in that line? Wow, look at what that guy's doing. He went and hired those guys even when he didn't need their work, but he went and got them anyway because he's so kind and generous. And he's paying all of them the same amount he offered me, which was a generous amount. What an amazing landowner. But see, their focus was on what I'm doing. I'm doing all this stuff. Hey, wait a minute. I'm getting ripped off here. What? You should be thankful you got hired in the first place. And you got hired for a generous amount anyway. Are you going to begrudge these other guys? Well, yes, because I have earned more. No, you haven't. We haven't. We don't earn our sanctification. It is all by God's grace. In fact, most of us are really like, we're those 11th hour guys. Really, if you think about it. God's grace is amazing. His generosity should be our focus. Your growth is no more dependent on you than your salvation was. That was the point of Paul's rebuke in Galatians 3.3 to the Galatians when he said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, if, if God saved you by His grace through faith, do you think He's going to turn around and then sanctify you by works? He has given good works. He's prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. But remember what God said, he who, be, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul's expanding our understanding of the amazing grace of God so that we would realize it's God at work in me. Right? That was his point back in 119. There's a tremendous surpassing power at work in you from God. And that power demonstrated itself not only in saving you, but it's still working to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ. To draw you near to Him. So they equip you to carry out good works in your life. Paul is trying to help them see that apart from Christ, you can't be saved. And apart from Christ, you can't be sanctified. The way to holiness is not just to try harder. The way to holiness is to grasp God's work in you, His grace at work in you, not only in the past, but also in the present. Now, before you accuse me of antinomianism or uh, saying that uh, you don't have to worry about the commandments given to believers, you know, this, they're not that important, just sit back, relax. You know, let me remind you, the primary theme of Ephesians is holiness. 
It is to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And when we get to chapters 4 and 6 and all the commands that Paul lays out, I will preach with all authority to obey them. Because Paul did. No, God's commands are important. There are thousands of them in the New Testament for a reason. But the issue is that you need to understand God's work of grace in you first. You need to understand who those works ultimately depend on. And you need to understand how to be rightly motivated to carry them out. We all need to obey perfectly. But do you have the right understanding of God's grace and the right mindset to do that? Paul is trying to move us there. Someone once confronted Martin Luther regarding his perceived antinomian doctrine of justification, saying, if this is true, a person could simply live as he pleased. I love Luther's reply. Indeed. Now, what pleases you? Augustine, in a similar vein, said this several hundred years earlier, love God and do as you please. See, they knew, they understood a a true understanding of God's grace, which generates a love and a gratitude for him. A true understanding of that grace that has been carried out in our past and carried out in our present. It does not lead to a more sinful life, but a more holy one. God's grace will move you toward a love for him. Yes, we struggle with sin. We must confess. We must turn from that sin, but recognize I throw myself at the feet of Christ and say, help me. By your grace, I know that you can free me from this. By your grace, I know I can do the works you've called me to do. You've laid them out in front of me to do them. You will give me the grace to do them. Help me, God, to understand that and to live in that. God's grace didn't stop salvation. If you think that's amazing to consider God's grace in your past, God's grace in your present, then hold on to your seats because there is one more facet, one more truth about God's grace given in Ephesians 2.7. And this truth, in my opinion, is stunning. And I don't say that just because we have a few minutes left and I want to keep your attention. Though I do want to keep your attention. This, what he says in verse 7 is shocking. He says there, God made us alive so that, or for the purpose of, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now think about what he's saying there. In the ages to come, ages there is plural. So he's not referring to one specific time period, but time periods. And this ages to come, come there is a present participle. It's, it's intensifying, it's, it's identifying that's an ongoing time. It's time from your present now, tomorrow, the next day, all the way into the future and into eternity. What he's saying is from now and forever, God has saved you. He made you alive and raised you up and seated you with Christ for this purpose so that he might demonstrate his grace to you forever, so that he might show you and all creation his kindness forever. God has saved you because he wants to pour out upon you not only today, not only tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade, up until your death, but even into eternity. He wants to continue to dump his kindness upon you. And it won't stop that first day you enter into heaven. 
You'll experience his grace, his unmerited favor, his kindness, his undeserved benefits for every single day of this life and all the life to come. That is stunning. That is amazing. That is beyond comprehension. That God would would dump and pour out his his surpassing, his extraordinary, his exceeding, his unfathomable riches and wealth. For eternity, and that that's why he has chosen us for adoption. Brothers and sisters, God saved you in order to be kind to you forever. <laughs> Isn't that something to motivate you? Isn't that something to rejoice in? God's plucked you out of that desperate state because he said, I want to be kind to you forever. Sound like a good deal? I want to dump my grace upon you, not only in this life, but for eternity. The only thing that's going to get in the way of that is sin. Don't let your sin impede the grace of God in your life. Deal with it. Sin is your enemy. It wants to rob you. Satan wants to rob you of the joy of experiencing God's grace every day. And that's why as believers, we still need to continue to repent, to turn from, to ask God, to forgive us, confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. It is so much more motivating to pursue holiness because you love God and you're grateful to Him than because you think you owe God something or want Him to be stay, to want to keep Him happy. Because you are clothed in Christ, God is already happy with you. There's a poem by W.H. Griffith Thomas that he wrote for his daughter. And I, I think it gives a fitting reflection on how to respond to God's incomparable grace. In it he says this, I will not work my soul to save, for that my Lord has done. But I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. Father, to consider your unmerited favor, your undeserved blessing and benefit upon us, not only in saving us, Lord, not only in our present life with you, but for eternity, that all the angels, that all the saints will be observing and watching you manifest your kindness forever, your sustaining of us forever, keeping us from sin and or giving us fellowship with you and that you continue to provide. You didn't just give us one box of chocolate, Lord, but abundance, super abundance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grasp this truth a little more so that we may live lives that, Lord, honor you, that are thankful to you, that that want to live for you, that want to reflect the image of your son, that, that want to have our light shine before men so that others could see how great and awesome you are. Father, we don't deserve these things. Let us not, Lord, have that mindset. We're trying to earn brownie points with you. But Lord, to to live for you because of what you've done and to live in your grace. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for our brother Paul and just moving him to write these words of encouragement and challenge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.